Welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, a Black history and true crime podcast where we discuss things from a decolonial critical perspective, but above all else without the unnecessary propaganda that people love to include for some reason. Most cases, as you know, focus on so-called Canada and again, as you might have guessed, most cases will also focus on Black people. This week is True Crime Week, and we are going to be diving into the Highway of Tears, which is unfortunately a hotspot for abductions and murders of women and girls, with perpetrators specifically targeting Indigenous women. Now, initially, I wanted to look into these cases because I was super unsure at the amount of women or girls who had been targeted in general, if any Black women were targeted and just learning more about what had gone on because I had only heard vague whisperings but had never really dived into research myself. I will note that the cases are quite difficult to listen to and I will be discussing what happened or what is expected or suspected to have happened to a lot of these women and girls. So if you are triggered by things like descriptions of dead bodies, um, talking about rape, sexual assault, and murder, then definitely do not listen this week. This is not the case for you, and that's totally fine. You can just skip on to another one. The cases will be of varying lengths depending on the amount of information out there about each case. Some of the victims have a lot and some have very little, but it's important to just share what is out there. This case does have a lot of victims, and so I will be breaking it down into two parts to make the whole thing easier to discuss and also in an effort to give each case the attention and information that it deserves. This first part, we will talk about some general background information and context information about the Highway of Tears, but also just about the area. We will talk a little bit about the RCMP investigation and their criteria for said investigation. We will discuss a handful of victims Um, which the police acknowledge and are apparently actively investigating. We will talk about the status of their cases and where you can contact to report any tips or helpful information which can be used to help honor the wishes of the family and bring them understanding of what happened to their loved one. The second part of the episode, which will be released next week, will continue to discuss victims who have gone missing or been murdered along the highway whose deaths and disappearances are not acknowledged or being investigated. And we will also hop back into discussing the RCMP. We will talk about the BC government, the Highway of Tears Symposium Recommendations Report, racism within the case, and of course, we'll conclude with my thoughts as per usual. Very similarly to the research done with the Helmlock Valley murders, if you haven't listened, I would definitely recommend going and giving that a listen, but BC definitely has a long-standing history and problems with serial killers, with abductions, and with murders, specifically of young Indigenous women. But in the articles that were written about the women that we'll be discussing today, many place blame on the women because they apparently participated in high-risk activities, which I strongly disagree with. I don't agree with this classification, and I don't think that it should have been brought up unless it played some relevance into the case, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Just because someone is a sex worker, they're hitchhiking or simply walking as a means of transportation, it doesn't mean that they're asking to be attacked, murdered, or in general victimized. Also, after doing research, I just want to say that only a few 
of the women had been known for participating in sex work, but most, if not all of them, were just minding their business, trying to get somewhere safely, or were out hanging out with friends or family members as young women tend to do. So enough of all this background information and this talking, now we're just going to get into it. So the Highway of Tears is actually a 724 kilometer stretch of Yellowhead Highway 16 in British Columbia. It is an area where many women, girls, primarily indigenous, have gone missing or have been murdered. It stretches from Prince Rupert on the northwest coast of BC to the interior city of Prince George. And it's important to note that there are 23 reserves which border this highway, which makes it easier, unfortunately, for Indigenous women to be targeted. Now, the exact number who have gone missing or murdered along this stretch of land is unknown. The RCMP only acknowledge 18 murders and disappearances, and you know how we feel about the RCMP and missing peoples, especially missing Indigenous peoples or missing Black people. We know how they typically will operate. But back to the topic at hand, because they only acknowledge 18, it means that they're only investigating 18, uh, which is 18 deaths spanning from 1969 to 2006. And not all of these cases are classified with them as homicides, but majority are homicides and the other ones are just considered disappearances. What makes them consider one a homicide and one a disappearance? when no body has been recovered i don't know but just something that they did so again they're only claiming that there were 18 murders and or disappearances and others like indigenous nations who live close nearby you know who have been living in the area for a long time they suspect that the number has now exceeded 40 as it's 2021 so I definitely agree and support this claim. You know, the people who are living in the community who are not the police obviously know a lot better and they would have heard of more people going missing as the police were just brushing off claims as they tend to do. But, you know, just based on the research that I have done, there are a lot of cases that are not acknowledged by the RCMP of people who have gone missing or have died along the Highway of Tears. So that's kind of frustrating for the families who want an investigation. I also believe that since the number of victims surpasses 40 or likely surpasses 40, it's clear that the RCMP are in no rush to solve any of the cases or bring forth any resolve. So they're not going to want to add more cases and acknowledge more people because then they're going to be responsible for solving those and they have not even been able to solve the ones that are on their plate currently. So the British Columbia actually has the highest rate of unsolved murders of Indigenous women and girls in the country, just to give a contextual idea of where all of these things are occurring. And we will return back to the RCMP, specifically their investigation and lack of results into in the second part. So make sure to tune back in for that next week. But the region of along the highway of tears is unfortunately categorized by poverty in my opinion when doing research it just looked like it lacked proper infrastructure funding and supports 
So there was no public transportation across this long stretch of highway, which forced many to begin hitchhiking as they didn't have cars or they didn't have access to friends or family who were nearby with cars. There was actually not even cell phone service along the Highway of Tears until 2021, which was something that nearby communities and advocates have been demanding since 2006. So imagine how many lives could have been protected or saved if it had been provided when it was first demanded. And it was also the last part of the highway to have cell phone coverage. So despite all of the people constantly going missing along the stretch of the highway, there were, because it was a number of indigenous girls, there was no real urgency to really do anything to protect them, unfortunately. So the lack of public transportation specifically resulted in a lot of people, especially young women, hitchhiking and hitchhiking frequently, which posed and continues to pose a safety risk, especially in this specific area. So as I mentioned before, the RCMP did launch an investigation, but it only launched in 2005, and it's named the EPANA investigation, E-P-A-N-A. And at first, they were very adamant that serial killers were not involved and there were not any active in the area and that there had to be logical explanations for what had happened to all of these women and all of these girls. But the investigation was ultimately launched because of the common threads between the cases of Alicia Germain, Roxanne Tierra, and Ramona Wilson. Now, the statement that it was clearly not a serial killer or multiple serial killers active shocked the public as it was clear that the deaths and abductions were the work of more than one, possibly like many serial killers. It's virtually impossible for each and every single one of the missing and or murdered women to have been taken by a different person every single time. And it would also make the RCMP's investigation, I guess you could call it, um, less than fruitful because it would be virtually impossible to find all these people. Now, when they made this statement, it's thought that the RCMP did this because they didn't want to cause any panic or uprising. But like people were already panicked because of the circumstances. So confirming what most people already believe to be true wouldn't have necessarily caused unnecessary panic. It probably would have helped a lot of people and it would have helped a lot of people stay vigilant and stay aware because people are still going missing and being abducted along this same stretch of highway. The criteria used when reviewing cases and de determining whether they should be added to the investigation, it's three things. So the first was that the victim was involved in what they would call high-risk activities such as hitchhiking, being involved in sex work or drugs. This to me was frustrating, extremely problematic, but we'll get into that not right now. The second is that the victim was last seen or their body was discovered within a mile of so Highway 16, Highway 97, and Highway 5. They had to be found in that general area or they had to be last seen in that area. And the third is that they were female. So they were a woman or they were a girl. Now, based on just the initial criteria, they initially only had nine victims and all but one was indigenous. Now, the search later increased the borders of their investigation. It led to them actually doubling the official number of Highway of Tears victims from nine to 18 still from the same time frame of 1969 to 2006. 
the disappearances went back as early as 1969 and the local police and RCMP did nothing about it. EPANA was only launched in 2005 because of growing public pressure and the RCMP They've said a lot of messed up, judgmental, and problematic things about this investigation and the victims. They've stated that many lived less than honorable lives fraught with criminal activity. And this very much comes off as a statement explaining away and victim blaming all in one. And it also showed the motivation that they already were going in there with preconceived notions and they did not feel required to check themselves at all. I feel like if there was a sweeping generalization made that a lot of the women who were targeted were involved in sex work and that was not the case, like only a couple of them were actually involved in that. Most were hitchhiking or simply minding their own business. So to victim blame in this situation is super frustrating, especially when you're responsible for bringing closure to the family or you're supposed to be responsible for bringing closure to the family. But we will return more to the RCMP their continued failures in the next episode. So now we're going to start talking about the victims, the general timeline of their deaths, and just information that I could find about them that would allow them to come to life and no longer just be a woman who died like this, but to be a whole person with qualities and attributes mentioned by their family. So if I could find that information, it's in here. And if it's not in here, it's because I couldn't find it. For any of the cases that are discussed throughout this episode or the next, if you have any information, the family is asking people to come forward with said information. If you want to remain anonymous and share the tip that you have, you can call 1-800-222-8477 and it is anonymous. You can leave that tip and help bring closure to the families. If there are ways of contacting the families directly, I would definitely recommend doing that instead of leaving that tip with the anonymous phone line. But definitely, definitely say something if you know something and not even because you like the police or want to help them in any way, but simply because you want to bring closure to the families and you want to honor their wishes for their loved one. So we're going to start with Gloria Lavina Moody who was a 27-year-old mother of two from Bella Coola Reserve in British Columbia. She was described as a very happy, fun-loving person who was always trying to help others. And her brother Dave said that he never really saw her sad, that she trusted everyone, and that was probably her main problem, is that she wasn't afraid of anyone. She was last seen leaving a bar in Williams Lake, British Columbia on October 25th, 1969. She had been traveling with family on a weekend road trip and they were having a lot of fun. Her two kids, Vanessa and Dan, stayed at home and they were being watched by a couple aunts so they were taken care of and she was able to just kind of relax and let loose. So since she was traveling with family, her and her brother decided to go to a couple bars and have some fun. When they were leaving the last bar that they visited named Ranch Hotel, her brother swore that she was right behind him as he was heading back to their hotel room. But when he got back to the hotel room, he realized that she was not right behind him and he's really unsure of what happened to her next and he doesn't know why she did not return. On October 26th, 1969, Gloria was found a day after 
her disappearance by two hunters on a cattle trail about 10 kilometers west of Williams Lake. She had been stripped naked, sexually assaulted, beaten, and later bled to death from her injuries. Her clothes were found near her body. There were a lot of rumors about who did it in the Williams Lake area, but whether these people came forward or not is unclear, so they were just kind of rumors at this point, speculation. But in 1998, the police visited Gloria's family and shared with them that they had three suspects in her assault and her murder, but at that point, they had all now died. So this allowed her case to continue on being unsolved, and the names of the main suspects remains under wraps. Gloria's daughter, Vanessa, says that a lot of her family and their community is traumatized and still deals with the trauma of what happened to her mother, and to this day, people still get choked up talking about it. She also says that her uncle, the one who had been with Gloria up until the night she disappeared, led a difficult life until he passed. He had a very hard time coping with what happened, as well as the responsibility or any guilt he found about the situation in its entirety. Micheline Parr is the next woman who we'll be talking about, and she was, like, freshly a woman. She had just turned 18, and she was from Quebec, and she was traveling through BC for the summer. She was described as fresh-faced, and she had a absolutely lovely smile. She was hitchhiking, which was common at the time, and while it was not the most safe way of traveling, it worked for Micheline, and... It continued to work as she had received actually a ride from two women who dropped her off at the gates of Tompkins Ranch on Highway 20 between Fort St. John and Hudson's Hope, which is along the Highway of Tears. This would unfortunately be the last location that Micheline was seen in July of 1970 along Fort St. John and Hudson's Hope, BC, as I just mentioned. Um, Unfortunately, her body was found on August 8th, 1970, near Hudson's Hope by a group of young people picking Saskatoon berries near the highway. It was not at all far from where she was last seen, only about 21 kilometers. Um, She had been badly beaten with a blunt object or weapon of sorts, and it's also believed that she had been sexually assaulted, but because she had been found a little bit after she had disappeared, her body had started to decompose and it was hard to be sure but after her case was initially shared it got a little bit of little bit of public attention but quickly weaned and her case still remains unsolved so now we're going to talk about gail ways i believe that's how you say her last name it's spelled w-e-y-s if it's wrong i'm so sorry but gail was from clearwater british columbia and she was described as a wholesome girl. She taught girl guides and she wasn't into drugs or alcohol, just kind of liked working, doing the girl guide thing, going home, hanging out with her family, hanging out with friends. She was like a very low-key person. On October 19th of 1973, Gail left work at around 9.30 p.m. and decided to hitchhike to her parents' house. She was last seen doing so and she would unfortunately never make it home. She was hitchhiking from Clearwater, going from work to home, and unfortunately on April 6th of 1974, her naked decomposed body was found in a water-filled ditch just about 11 kilometers south of Clearwater, just shy of a year after she first disappeared. 
after about 40 years, after she was found, her family is still asking for public assistance as they are tortured by their loss. They want to find her, find out what happened to her, and just bring a final sense of closure. Now, it was suspected that Bobby Jack Fowler was responsible for her death, but there was lacking evidence to convict him or really just do anything about this this suspicion, so her case remains unsolved, unfortunately. So, Bobby Jack Fowler gets mentioned a couple more times, so we are just going to talk about him and before we do that i just want to mention how extremely frustrating it is that there's a lot more information out there about him than there are about the victims and say like the things that they were wearing the night they disappeared information like that that could be really useful or could have been really useful to put out there is not out there but there's a million and one articles about bobby jack fowler So if you don't know who he is, he is an American rapist and serial killer born on June 12th, 1939. The police said that there were no serial killers involved. And then the first person that they suspected for being responsible for a highway of tears victim was a serial killer. So that is interesting. He was suspected of having upwards of 20 victims in Canada and the U.S., with most of the assaults and murders happening in B.C. and Oregon. He was actively killing between 1969 and 1995, and he would typically rape and murder his victims, beat them throughout the process, and then strangle them. He held a very disturbing belief that women or girls who were hitchhiking or drinking in bars wanted to be sexually assaulted, so he was just doing what they asked for. He would eventually only be convicted of one murder, the death of 16-year-old Colleen McMillan, whose story we will return to in a minute. Uh, He traveled a lot for work, and he was a construction worker, so he thoroughly enjoyed what he did and the positions that he held. In 1974, he worked for a roofing company in Prince George, so he would travel the Highway of Tears quite often. It's believed that he could be responsible for 10 to 20 murders along the highway, but all of the evidence is super circumstantial. The most that people are working with is that he was in the area at the time and the death seemed to follow his MO. MO stands for modus operandi. I always wanted to find out what that is and remember it because I've heard of it before, just didn't know the exact word. So that's what it stands for. And it's a Latin term which describes a person or a group's pattern of operating. So in this case, just the way that he would handle his targets. While on the road for work, he developed extensive addiction issues with alcohol, amphetamines, and methamphetamine. He had an extensive record, which actually ranged from attempted murder, sexual assault, and just general firearm offenses. In 1969, he was charged with murdering two people in Texas but ended up somehow only being convicted for discharging a firearm within city limits. He would later go on to spend time in jail in Tennessee for sexual assault and attempted murder because he tied up a woman, severely beat her with her own belt, covered her with some shrubbery, and then left her there to die, or he had already assumed that she had died. Fowler had few victims who survived his brutal attacks, But when they did survive, they reported what he looked like to 
police in hopes that it would lead to him being captured and so that he wouldn't be able to harm others. And a victim actually coming forward is what led to his arrest on June 28th, 1995. So a bleeding and naked victim actually jumped out of a second story motel window with the rope that was used to try and tie her up still on her ankle as she ran away trying to get help. And on January 8th, 1996, Fowler was convicted of kidnapping, attempted rape, and sexual abuse in the first degree, assault in the fourth degree, as well as coercion and menacing. He was sentenced to 16 years and three months with the possibility of parole, but he would die in May of 2006 in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Just want to say that it's really telling that an American serial killer would be active along this coast for, you know, a long period of time as they suspect that he was and not get caught because even though he wasn't from the country, he knew that this was the spot that he could go and essentially just do whatever sick thing he wanted to whomever because people would not care, which is really unfortunate. On November 6th of 1973 at around 9 p.m., Pamela Darlington told her roommates that she was going to go hitchhike to a local bar. She wanted to go out and she was going to do it. So she actually made it there and she was last seen in downtown Kamloops. And unfortunately, shortly after this, she would be found murdered in a local park in November of 1973. She was partially clothed at the time and badly beaten. And she was found face down in the Thompson River at Pioneer Park. Witnesses who were on a train that was passing nearby said that they saw a rusty off-white or salmon pink 1950s Chrysler leaving the park and trying to cross the train tracks around the time that Pamela was found. And once again, the RCMP suspected that Bobby Jack Fowler was responsible, so her case unfortunately remains unsolved. Monica Ignas was a 14-year-old girl who lived just off of the highway in a community named Thornhill, which will be mentioned a couple more times. On December 13th, 1974, at around 11 p.m., she was seen walking alone on Highway 16 headed towards home. She was wearing a blue duffel coat with wooden toggle buttons, as well as brown wallaby-style shoes and blue socks. Two witnesses told the police that they saw a car pulled over on the side of the road near the area that Monica was last seen, and there was a man inside and a passenger sitting in the passenger seat who looked like a girl that was also inside the vehicle. Four months after she disappeared on April 6th of 1975, Monica's body would be found in a wooded forest service road known as Selgar, only a few kilometers east from where she was last seen alive and she was found with only one sock. There are unfortunately no leads or suspects in this case and it remains unsolved. So Colleen McMillan was the young girl who I said that we would return to when we were talking about Bobby just a couple minutes ago. So Colleen was 16 years old in August of 1974 when she left her family home in Lac La Hache to a hundred mile house BC to hitchhike in order to go and visit a friend. She was leaving 
And as she was doing so, she told her little brother, you know, like, don't tell mom that I'm going hitchhiking. So it was obvious this was something that she wanted to hide. She didn't want anyone to know. She knew she shouldn't really be doing it. But how else was she going to get to her friend's house? This would, this conversation with her little brother would actually be the last time that she was seen or heard from. Her body was found about a month later, only 50 kilometers from her house. And her shirt was actually found near her body, but DNA evidence technology didn't exist at this point or it wasn't very advanced. So it wasn't really helpful that they found DNA. It was just like, oh, cool, there's DNA here. 38 years later, on September 25th of 2012, the DNA evidence that was collected led the RCMP to announce that Bobby Jack Fowler was responsible for Colleen's death and this being because his DNA was found on her body, which made it clear that he was responsible. And this evidence was found six years after Fowler died. So there was nothing for the police to really work with. It was just like, yeah, we were pretty sure he did it because there's DNA evidence, but you cannot convict a dead person. You can't question a dead person. So there was nowhere for them to really go with this information. Colleen is the first victim mentioned so far whose death is considered solved, but also like the perpetrator is dead, so the family may never get the answers that they're looking for. And there was also a bit of controversy regarding the way that this case was handled, but we'll get into that in the next part of the episode. So from this point on, there seems to be a large increase in the amount of information that is out there about each victim, which was nice to see. So we will be discussing each woman each girl a little bit more in depth getting to know them a little bit better aside from what happened to them so monica jack was a beautiful young girl who had a unique and distinctive laugh she was extremely vibrant and above all else she was loved she was deeply loved by her friends her family and even her teachers She had two older brothers and three sisters, and she was a really good student who had tons of friends. Monica would unfortunately last be seen on May 6th of 1978, riding her bike along the Highway of Tears near the Nicola Ranch in Merritt, BC. Now, the bike had actually been an early birthday gift from her dad, an early 13th birthday gift, and Madeline Lorano, her mother, stated that this was the first time that Monica had asked to ride into Merritt. It was about 30 kilometers away. Madeline says that the bike was so new that she wasn't used to going very far with it, but she was 100% sure and she was determined to convince her mom that she was able to make the journey both there and back. So she gave her permission, you know, she was like, okay, go ahead, do this. Monica left home and met up with cousin and good friend Debbie John so the two could go into town together and buy a birthday gift for Monica's little sister, Lizzie. While driving back home after running a couple of errands, Madeline saw Monica and Lizzie riding back home. She honked at them and the kids who were in the car with her asked if they wanted rides and Monica said no. And this would unfortunately be the last time that Monica and her mother would see each other. So after seeing her daughter, Madeline continued on with plans of going fishing overnight, as many families in the area often did. And 
she came back home the next morning only to realize that Monica had not come home. She called family, friends, and the police to try and locate her missing child. The officer who Madeline spoke to he was really rude and unprofessional. He didn't really take notes and he didn't record any part of her interview. She believed that this was rooted in racism as she's an indigenous woman and a single mother at that. She states that the Merritt area where they now lived had a lot of issues with racism and this was something that the family had previously not experienced when living in Oroville. After moving to Merritt though all of that changed and her sons began to experience difficulties based on their ethnicity. They found it difficult to find sports teams to play on. Debbie John says that she and Monica were super close and they would often spend a lot of time together on the weekends. On May 5th, they spoke on the phone to plan their trip into town to go shopping, and they were really looking forward to it. They were super excited. So after riding to town and then riding back home, they went their separate ways, and Debbie called Monica's house to see if she made it home, and one of Monica's siblings told her that she hadn't, and Debbie was wondering what happened, but she was like, okay, she'll probably just, she'll make it home eventually, you know, like she'll, she'll get there. Now, Monica would go on to be the youngest Highway of Tears victim at just 12 years old. Her body was found on June 2nd, 1995, 17 years after she was killed. And because it had been so long, only her skull and some bone remained, but her bike and her clothes were actually found on the side of the road by her 18-year-old brother, the day after her disappearance her brother named glenn jack now monica's case is actually solved and there is someone who was charged with her death and had to answer for it which brought i'm sure a lot of closure to the family and made them ecstatic to know or finally have a better idea of what possibly happened to her despite knowing that it was horrible it was it's just nice to have some sort of closure, and I totally understand that. So Gary Taylor Handlin is responsible for Monica's death, and he was also charged with the death of a an 11-year-old girl named Catherine Mary Herbert, who is not involved with the Highway of Tears, and he was charged with both of these deaths in 2014. It was obvious, apparently, that he had murdered Monica when he was on bail and there was an ongoing trial for another rape and murder when he had done what he did to end Monica's life. So he actually had an extensive record of sexual violence going back to 1963, which included assaulting a 17-year-old at knife point when he was only 21 abducting an 18-year-old and raping her once again at knife point, as well as varying drug charges. His record was not allowed in trial, as there were claims that it could have biased the jury. Okay, like that's definitely a choice. Handlin says that he is not responsible for Monica's death, but it was maintained by legal parties involved that he actually confessed to the crime during a conversation with an undercover officer in a Mr. Big Sting. 
This was basically a tactic used where police convince the suspect to confess to a crime by convincing them that they're talking to a crime boss or a mobster that they work for. This seems a little bit excessive and I, I'm unsure of how legally upstanding this is, but at the time of the operation, he was living in Minden, Ontario, and it began in 2013 as the RCMP had suspected Handlin was responsible for Monica's death, but lacked the evidence to prove it. He was eventually introduced into a fake gang and was taken through a bunch of varying scenarios and different environments by that gang. And the police allege at the end of these scenarios on November 14th, 2014, Handlin told Mr. Big that he was responsible for abducting Monica while she was riding her bike. The Mr. Big confession was allowed in the trial proceedings for Monica's case, but it was not allowed in the case of Catherine Mary Herbert, which was another murder that Handlin was charged with that we talked about before. The judge presiding over Catherine's case said that it was likely that the police had manipulated him and his words, and so it couldn't be allowed in. But nonetheless, he was arrested in November of 2014, and the trial for Monica's murder began in December of 2018, and it was a jury trial that lasted 51 days. The Crown alleged during this trial that Handlin told officers that he grabbed Monica after seeing her ride her bike north of Highway 5A in Merritt in May of 1978. He says that he grabbed her, took her into his camper, raped her, and then strangled her and dumped her body. Many articles said that he had sex with, but one does not have sex with a 12-year-old. That's not a thing. And terminology is super important in this kind of discourse like she was a child she was a literal child you don't have sex with a child being a grown man like that's rape so at the end of the trial on january 17th of 2019 a jury found handlin guilty of first-degree murder of monica jack her family spoke at the sentencing and told reporters that the day was a fine day to celebrate Monica's final victory. And Monica's case is only one of two solved cases in this entire stretch of women and girls who have gone missing. 33-year-old Maureen Mosey was last seen hitchhiking near Salmon Arm, British Columbia on May 8th, 1981. It's thought that she was doing so to get back home, and she lived in Kamloops at the time. Witnesses saw her getting into the car of a man who was in his late 20s, early 30s, with black or brown hair and a beard. It's a very vague description, I must say, and it could be literally anyone, especially because of the time period, like in the 80s. I feel like most people had beards, and a lot of the hitchhiking that was being done it seems that it was men picking up women so again very vague not a very helpful description there's not a whole lot of information out there about Maureen which is super unfortunate and it was really frustrating especially because her case is unsolved and her family wants answers but the information isn't even being put out there but unfortunately her body was found on May 9th of 1981 about 16 kilometers east of Kamloops 
and she was found severely beaten. Her body was actually located by a woman who was walking her dog along the highway, and it was found at the end of a lane which was leading to Highway 97. As I mentioned before, this case is unsolved, and there definitely needs to be more information found about her and put out there if there's ever going to be a chance to bring closure to her family. Shellyanne Baxku was a 16-year-old girl who had aspirations of becoming a teacher and was described by her family as tiny in size but having quite the bold personality. She came from a family of four, her mother Muriel, her father Sandy, and her older brother Tim, and her made four. So her mother said that she was extremely trusting of all people. She loved life and loved people. She was the bright shining star of her parents' life and that her kind-hearted and trusting nature was likely a large contributing factor to her disappearance and murder. On May 3rd, 1983, Shellyanne went to her boyfriend's house in Alberta after school. She called her mom at around 8 p.m. to tell her that she was on her way home, that a friend was about to pick her up and give her a ride. It was a pretty dark, windy, and cold night, so a ride would definitely be necessary. And she asked her mom to make one of her favorite, favorite noodle dishes so that she could eat as soon as she got home. During this phone call, she told her mom that she would be home in about 15 minutes. And 15 minutes passed, but Shellyanne did not come home and she did not make it home. An hour passed and there was still no sight of her. So at around 9 p.m., Shellyanne's boyfriend called Muriel, her mom, which was kind of unusual. Um, her boyfriend couldn't drive her home, otherwise he would have. And he told Muriel that their friend was not able to drive her either. So Shellyanne made the decision to walk down Highway 16 to get home. It was about four miles or six and a half kilometers or about an hour to an hour and a half walk to get home from Shelly's boyfriend's house and her mother and her family does not believe that she would ever try to make that trek especially alone especially at night and especially because the weather was not the greatest that night her family drove and there weren't cell phones at the time so she would have simply just called and asked her parents or her brother for a ride home the same way that she had called to let her mom know that she was on her way home and any of them would have gladly picked her up this phone call set off major red flags for Muriel, and she called the police immediately. Shellyanne's father, Sandy, and her brother, Tim, drove around Highway 16 to look for her, and Muriel was walking around to try to locate her. She was last seen by witnesses walking down Highway 16 towards her home on May 3, 1983. The witnesses told police that Shellyanne was carrying her books and didn't appear to show any interest in passing cars or hitchhiking. How this person would have known this seems kind of unclear to me. It seems like they may have actually had the opportunity to talk to her or it might not have actually been her. They might have just been making this whole thing up. But her family definitely believes that something happened to her right after she called to say she would be home soon. After her initial disappearance, Friends, families, acquaintances, and neighbors searched for her, and the area near their home is basically all wilderness. It's very dense woods, shrubs, and a river, so it's super hard to navigate, but the more people who helped, the better. 
A few days after Shelley was reported missing, her jacket, bra, pantyhose, and library book, as well as student card, were found three miles or about 4.8 kilometers from her home near the Athabasca River. Her belongings were found, but unfortunately she was not. Many people have been interviewed as suspects in Shelly Ann's case, but no arrests have been made. They even have DNA evidence from who they suspect is her perpetrator, but they have yet to match it to anyone. Muriel and her family are continually frustrated by the lack of movement and progress in the case overall, something I'm sure all of these women and girls' families go through and experience. But at one point, the RCMP didn't even reach out to the Backscoos for about 15 years. In the 30 years plus since Shellyanne's disappearance, her brother Tim unfortunately passed away after losing a fight with cancer, and it just seems like this family is unfortunately being hit with tragedy after tragedy. Muriel is now well into her older years, and she just wants peace. She says that she does not want to pass away without knowing what happened to her daughter, and begs anyone with any information, as small as it might seem, to come forward as it is all helpful and can play a key role in getting the closure that the family needs and deserves. I just want to begin talking about Alberta Williams by saying that in 2016, there was an eight-part podcast exclusively released about her death and her life, which was titled Who Killed Alberta Williams? And I would most definitely recommend giving that a listen if you are interested the link will be in the description. So 24-year-old Alberta Gail Williams lived in Vancouver in 1989 with her sister Claudia. They decided to spend more time in a rural area, so that summer they moved and did exactly that. They decided to head north to find work, and they crossed their fingers for it to be seasonal. That's what they really were after was some seasonal work. The duo went on to be hired along with a lot of other indigenous people at a local fish canning place. Um, the workplace had super long work days, but both girls were up for it. They were looking forward to it and they had no issues with the length of the days. They were often able to make friends through work who they would later meet up with at a bar named Popeyes and they were doing exactly this on August 26th of 1989. They were standing outside talking to a group of friends, which was nothing out of the ordinary nothing out of the normal claudia's boyfriend was there so she turned to speak with him for a minute and by the time they had turned their attention back to the group alberta was gone no one in the friend group knew where she was or who she might have left with or knew if she had left willingly or by force other witnesses however alleged that alberta got into a truck a black truck with her uncle jack and a non-native man that they did not know these were the only details that were announced to the public, which was kind of vague and not very useful, but the situation, only months after her arrival in Prince Rupert, she was kidnapped, and only three days after she was last seen, Alberta's body was found in the bush along Highway 16. She was stripped of her clothing. She had been absolutely brutally assaulted both physically and sexually prior to her death. Despite being a part of the RCMP investigation, her sister Claudia stated in an interview done in 2006 that Alberta had no reason to take off, hitchhike, try to leave, or anything like that, and that she was also not involved in sex work or any other high-risk activities. 
Uh, the only place that her sister would be going was home to sleep. And she knows that her sister would not have willingly left without her without saying anything to anyone. Claudia also went on to say that her sister was not an active participant in high-risk activities. As I mentioned before, she says that Alberta had money and a lot of it and that there were no family problems or other issues going on at the time, which would have made her sneak away from everyone without telling somebody. This was just not in her character or in her nature. Claudia and her family are sure that Alberta was at a party with the killer on the night that she disappeared. Once the family was told that Alberta's body was found, Claudia said that she was with the man she thought to have killed her sister. When he learned that her body was found, he asked Claudia to watch the kids and then left town very abruptly. The man's car was later seized and searched, but the family were not told anything about the result of this search or if anything was found at all. In 2016, former lead of the investigation into the murder of Alberta Williams, Gary, sent an anonymous and strange email, which was just one line, and he shared the name of the man he thought to be responsible for the assault and death of Alberta, but the person that he alleges is responsible is her uncle, Jack Little, who we mentioned previously before. Alberta and her uncle Jack were described as very close, and witnesses say that on the night of her disappearance, Alberta was telling those around that her uncle was about to take her to a party. This is a very left-field allegation, it seems, like to accuse her uncle, but it was one that was later backed up by another former police officer named Rick Ross, and the duo says that they never changed their minds once they saw him as the perpetrator, but continued to explore every other avenue, which again doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, they even spoke to Jack and alleged that he was very tight-lipped and not very forthcoming about the overall details of that night, so they saw it as like a lot of different red flags. I personally do not think that this automatically insinuates that he was guilty i think it could have been symbolic of a number of things one of which was distrust with the police like what he says can be easily manipulated especially because they were not seeing anyone as a suspect except for him gary also says that the case is absolutely solvable which brings up the question of why didn't you solve it then to me, this was clear that there's a much bigger cover-up at play. It definitely seems like a cover-up of some other sort, like they knew who was actually responsible and just blamed the uncle because he was the last one spotted with her. Alberta's aunt, Donna, actually said that a relative named Amanda saw Alberta over the weekend after the day that she had allegedly gone missing. Amanda said that Alberta, Jack, and another man, I'm assuming it's the same non-native man that was mentioned being spotted in the car with them before, came over to use the bathroom and borrow some money. Amanda said that Alberta was clearly, like, visibly drunk and had to be helped back to the truck when it was time. Amanda's younger sister, Yvonne, and her boyfriend, Ed, not her sister's boyfriend, but Amanda's boyfriend, Ed, they were also at home when Alberta and the other men stopped by on a Saturday, which would have been the day after she was allegedly missing. This story, however, is basically ignored because 
Yvonne remembers that it was raining that night, but according to the police, according to historical weather records, it was not raining that day. Now, I don't know what they're using as historical weather records, but I mean, I feel like it's it's possible that she just misremembered this one aspect. But like if three people are confirming that she was there and that they saw her and that she was drunk and then disappeared... And this is after the day that she was missing. That seems like important information to add because, I don't know, I just feel like it would open up a whole other realm of possibilities of what happened. So the family is asking for people to come forward and they want them to understand that now's the time to talk. It's been so long after her murder has occurred that it won't hurt anyone, but it can provide clues and tips to solve the case and once again bring closure to the family and unfortunately, this case is still unsolved. Delphine Nickel, or Nickel, was a beautiful indigenous woman of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and is the baby of her family, born on February 16, 1975, near Smithers, BC. And she was actually born in the same hospital as Ramona Wilson, who we will talk about after. Uh, Delphine was extremely animal loving and super adventurous. And she had two distinctive visible markings, which would make her easy to identify, which is a scar on her right temple and a purple birthmark on her neck. At 11 years old in 1986, she left Smithers and moved to Telqua to live with her mom. It's assumed that she adjusted well, but unfortunately, only four years later in 1990, her mother went into a fairly routine surgery, but something had gone wrong. And it had resulted in her being in a coma for about four months in a Prince George hospital, which was about four hours away from Telqua. Delphine had to move once again, but this time it wasn't super far as she just moved in with her uncle, Frank Tompkins, who lived across the street from them. So super close. And she was just to stay there until her mom recovered and was able to go back home and take care of her. On June 13th, 1990, at around 2 p.m., Delphine told her uncle that she was going to go meet up with bestie Crystal Grenke and two others. It's thought that the four of them walked around town all afternoon heading into the evening. They walked to Mohawk gas station on the corner of Main Street and Highway 16 as it started to get later into the night. Delphine's friends said that it was unlike her to invite them to spend the night at her house, especially since her mom wasn't home, but she had done this. And it wasn't something that had happened before. None of the girls individually or together had been invited to spend the night. It wasn't something that they were able to do because they all had school and work the next day. So they told her that and she was like, all right, no problem. So at around, at around 10 p.m., they parted ways to go home. And before they did so, Delphine called her uncle to say that she was heading home. And after the call, she began to make her way home. She was last seen hitchhiking home in the eastbound lane of Highway 16 between Smithers, B.C., where she was born, and Telqua, B.C., where she lived at the time. She unfortunately would never make it home. After Delphine did not make it home, her family reported her missing, and the police did not at all take this seriously, and they actually told the family that she'd probably just run off for a little bit and would be home soon. 
there was absolutely no urgency to locate her to look for her or even actually file report to say that she was missing and it was alleged that the police reacted this way because delphine was known to them through previous activities which i won't be mentioning in detail because i find it super irrelevant to me if you have any bias against a child especially when you claim that your job is to protect it's terrible it's a terrible attribute like she's a literal minor and in Canada, once you turn 18, your juvie records are sealed and aren't supposed to affect the rest of your life. So it's wild that they would use something that literally won't even matter in less than two years to justify not looking for her, a literal missing child. Despite the terrible police reaction to them reporting Delphine is missing, the family began searching throughout the Vancouver area to look for her. They were driving around, knocking on doors, and doing whatever they could have at the time to try and help bring her home. Her sister Mary says that the cops never showed a lot of interest, so it was quite obvious from the jump that they did not care. But when they actually did get involved, they immediately ruled out foul play, which is like, how could that be ruled out so quickly? Especially because at this point, there had already been a record that they were aware of, of young women and minors, children, who had been abducted and murdered along this same stretch of highway in the years leading up to Delphine's case. They made it clear that they believed that she would end up on the streets of Vancouver as many young people did at this time. They consistently insinuated that she had run away for a little bit or she was partying, having a little bit of fun and she would return when she was good and ready. The family, however, did not believe this whatsoever because when Delphine was 11, her dad died. And so she was currently with her only living parent who was sick and in the hospital. So it's super unlikely that she would take off at this time. And she also would have mentioned it to the friends that she had seen that same day. And she didn't. She would have also packed most, if not all of her stuff if she was going to leave. And she had not done that either. CanPro Investigation Services and the Missing Children Society of Canada offered a $10,000 reward and all of a sudden, information started coming in when it hadn't before. Someone who worked at the Mohawk gas station said that Delphine got into a red sports car on the night she disappeared and her friends did not see this, but two of the friends confirmed that she was hitchhiking in the eastbound lane and that's where this alleged witness says that she saw Delphine get into the car. It was vaguely mentioned that evidence found suggested that she never made it home or near home the night she was murdered. And in 2019, the information came forward that Delphine was likely picked up by someone who was heading out of town. Her cousin Cecilia had gone missing the year before, and it was thought that their cases may have been linked in some way. And Bobby Jack Fowler was a suspect in both of their cases, but it's a lead that cannot go anywhere as he is passed and there's not enough evidence to link him to the case. So Delphine's body has never been recovered and she has not been seen or heard from in over 30 years. Her case remains unsolved. Ramona Lisa Wilson was born on February 15th, 1978, and she was raised in the same city in which she was born, which was Smithers, BC, the same town and hospital as Delphine. And she lived in Smithers with her mom, and she was also the baby of the family, and she had five older siblings. She absolutely just adored her mother, Matilda, and they often spent a lot of late night quality time together. 
Ramona was extremely smart and creative. She loved reading and writing poetry. And at 16 years old, she was described as quite the typical teen. She enjoyed spending time with her mom, of course, her friends, and she even had a part-time job. On June 11th, 1994, Ramona told her mom that she was going to meet up with a friend and then later in the night make their rounds at some graduation parties with some more friends. One of the parties they were going to was in Hazleton, BC, which was about an hour away from Smithers, and she unfortunately did not make it there. There were allegations that she was actually not going to a couple parties with her friends, that this was a cover story, and she was actually headed to Morristown to visit her boyfriend, but no one actually spotted her there, so it's unclear how much validity should be attributed to this claim. When her mother did not hear from or see her the next day, she began to get worried, as I'm sure any mother would if they were as close as these two. They spoke often, especially over the phone. So after she could not find, locate, or speak to Ramona, she called the RCMP and reported her daughter as missing. The police thought that Ramona had run away or left with her boyfriend and didn't take the claim too seriously. This was actually the same narrative that they were attempting to push with Delphine, and this would be an ongoing narrative that they continue to push on other Indigenous women and their families as we go through the rest of the cases. After seeing a check in her room that had not been cashed or deposited, along with a couple of other personal things that they don't mention the details of that were left in her room, uh, they finally took her mom seriously when she said that something bad must have happened to her daughter. On June 13th, a search for Ramona began and went on for months, and it's kind of unclear if or when the searches formally ended, and they unfortunately did not have any results. And the family actually set out to raise money in order to offer a reward for any information and unfortunately it didn't go as planned and the family was not able to raise the money needed to begin this campaign. This was super frustrating because around the same time there was a super successful fundraiser in their town for a woman who wasn't even murdered there. She was murdered in BC in Surrey named Melanie Carpenter. And this was not to say that Melanie did not deserve support, but Ramona did as well. And it seemed like she was just kind of being ignored. A local paper actually printed a story on the dynamic in the town and questioned if Melanie being white was the motivating force behind the success of that fundraiser and also questioned why corporate citizens, which I would assume that means like the rich people in their town, were not as generous with Matilda and her family when they could have used the funds just as much as a woman who wasn't even from that area. On April 7th of 95, the family was finally able to offer a $10,000 reward for any information about Ramona's disappearance, and this would come through the same organization that gave financial support to Delphine's family, the Missing Children's Society of Canada, and this would be just about two months shy of the one-year anniversary of her disappearance. Only two days after the reward was announced, her body was actually found on April 9th of 95 along Highway 16 in a wooded area near Smithers Airport. She was found by two boys who were ATVing in the area, and she was located just off of Yelich Road. And a couple of items were found neatly organized next to her some of which included a half-buried piece of rope 
three interlocking nylon ties, and a small pink water pistol. Because she had been there so long, it was virtually impossible to run any DNA tests or gather any other forensic evidence from anything that was left at the scene. And it was clear, based off of where she was found, that her body was supposed to be hidden, but obviously not that hidden because there were items that were purposely left right beside her. Based on where she was found, Matilda thinks that it has to be someone who is super familiar with the area who is responsible. It's very likely that it was a local and that makes the family super uncomfortable to think about knowing that they may have walked past this person more than once. Unfortunately, Ramona's case has gone cold and little to no progress has been made. Brenda, who is Ramona's sister, is the lead organizer responsible for the yearly memorial walk, which occurs every June. They walk the route that they thought Ramona would have last walked, and they meet at Lake Kathleen School and walk to Yelich Road, concluding near where Ramona was found. They usually have signs and chants and speeches will be made also at some point, and the family always makes a point of recognizing other murdered or missing Highway of Tears victims. Her case is unfortunately unsolved, but the family still holds out hope that they will find out what happened to her. Her mother has stated multiple times that she feels super lucky because at least they were able to find her and give her a proper proper burial. She recognizes that this is not a privilege that others who have lost loved ones along the same highway were afforded, which to me is a really heartbreaking thing to say because it should never be considered a privilege to find a loved one who has passed away, especially someone who was so young as Ramona. But the fact that these families are just seeing even finding them as a privilege shows that the RCMP work being done around these cases is inadequate. So now we are going to get into Roxanne Tiara. Uh, Roxanne was actually born in Manitoba. I wasn't able to find out exactly where, but she was from Manitoba originally. And she was described as a happy, bubbly, and overall just like a good kid. She was well-loved, and she spent most of her childhood actually in foster care in Quesnel, BC. And she was under the care of Mildred Tiara and her family of three. And Mildred would eventually be granted legal guardianship of Roxanne, actually. So this was like her family, even though she was placed with them through foster care. This was the only family she knew, and she really loved them, and they really loved her. Roxanne herself had dreams of becoming a fashion designer and just essentially wanted to do what was necessary to build a better life for herself. Now, growing up in Quesnel, uh, Roxanne started to not really attend school on a very regular basis, and she actually began to hang out with those who were considered a part of the bad bunch, according to her mom, her foster mom, Mildred. And when she was 12, actually, she was in juvie and met her best friend, Crystal Grinky, who, if you remember, is the same girl who was friends with Delphine and Ramona, and Ramona and Roxanne were actually friends as well. I wouldn't mention her time spent in juvie if the family didn't emphasize how much she struggled with being in juvie and how hard being released was for her. A relative of Roxanne actually said that the incarceration was the worst thing to happen to her, and after her release, she just kind of went wild. And to me, this just sort of symbolizes her losing control 
after being so traumatized from being locked up at age 12 she didn't really know how to handle herself or just be after experiencing ultimate freedom after having all of her freedom taken away i feel like roxanne's case is a perfect example of how jailing minors especially but just jail in general is not really as productive or beneficial as people think it is um it really according to her family didn't do much for her except allow her to spiral further down her hole of i guess trying to cope with all of the trauma that she'd experienced in her young life so after getting out of juvie roxanne actually began to spend a lot of time in williams lake which is a small town just outside of quiznell where she was living at the time uh, she be actually began to do drugs and participated in sex work a type of sex work which is referred to as survival sex which just basically means that she was doing what was necessary for her survival now despite battling addiction just at the young age of 15 years old she always made a point to check in with mildred and the rest of the family and if she wasn't calling then she was physically going to visit them now in the summer of 1994 around the end of june kind of end of june Roxanne told her mom she wanted to go to rehab and get back to her dreams of pursuing and get back to pursuing her dreams of becoming a fashion designer. Her family was super happy to hear this and everyone supported her fully and everyone just really wanted to see her succeed. They loved her so much and they just wanted her to have everything that she had ever dreamed of. Now on June 27th, 1994, Roxanne left Mildred's home in Quesnel and went to Prince George to pick up some things. And she said that she would be back the following day and went on her way. She did not come back the following day, and this would unfortunately be the last time her family would see or speak to her. Now, July long weekend, Roxanne told a friend that she would be going somewhere with a client in downtown Prince George. After having that conversation with her friend, she walked away and she unfortunately would not be seen again. Her mom, Mildred, spent all of July searching for her and also reported her missing as it was very out of the ordinary for Roxanne to not check in regularly. Her mom began to ask around if anyone had seen her or heard from her and her and the rest of the family actually began handing out flyers and posting them everywhere that they could, but unfortunately no news or tips came in about Roxanne. On August 17th of 1994, about a month after her initial disappearance, her body was found near, near Burns Lake, BC, off of Highway 16. Her body was left in the brush just before the town of Burns Lake, and she was only 15 years old when she was murdered. It's believed the person responsible knew the area around the highway extremely well to have been able to navigate and leave her where she was found. It's also believed that she was not killed where she was found, but transported there post-mortem. This is the first case we have discussed, which explicitly mentions the victim participating in sex work and battling a drug addiction, with, which were some of the things that the RCMP mentioned before had to be a part of the cri criteria in order for their cases to be considered a part of the EPANA or Highway of Tears investigation. But none of the other victims it mentioned that they were actively involved in these two things but at the same time this is the first case where it was mentioned and to me she was a child she was 15 she was quite young when she started participating in sex work and also battling addiction 
and she was just a child who needed adequate support and to coincide with the support she was getting from home um she just needed adequate support and she and her family were working towards getting her that prior to her death this is just overall a super unfortunate situation all of the cases are but this one especially stuck out to me and unfortunately this case remains unsolved and there are no suspects and it doesn't seem that there are there doesn't appear to be any leads unfortunately regarding this case either and now we're going to get into the next case of alicia germain alicia leah germain was born in 1978 and was first nation she was known to be extremely kind caring and affectionate and she was actually seen as a very sensitive person who put on a hard exterior as the world was super unkind to her, but she always remained soft to the core. She had a huge passion for singing and dancing. And growing up, she had what can only be described as a tumultuous home life, which eventually led up to her parents' divorce and her actually running away at age 12. This would eventually lead to her being assigned a youth worker and being placed in the care of the government through CFS, which is Child and Family Services. Her caseworker, her youth worker, described her as tough and independent, and it was noted that she did not fit in very well with group homes or foster families. Because of these specific attributes, Alicia would unfortunately be named a difficult child, so that's what she would be labeled as, and she actually ended up living on the street, being houseless at only age 12. After her mom found out that her daughter was living on the streets, she did everything she could to try and get her back home, but she didn't quite know how, and it seems like that's a common thread in this case. No one quite knew how to help her or to get her to any sort of resources which would benefit her which is unfortunate and quite sad and it's also reflective of a much bigger problem than just the highway of tears but we'll get into that later while living on the street alicia became addicted to drugs and eventually was sexually exploited and it was assumed that she eventually made her way into sex work the type of survival sex work that we had mentioned that roxanne was a part of but by the end of 1994 alicia decided that she wanted to get her life back on track and so she was doing everything within her power to beat her addiction and she actually had plans to go back to school finish her grade 10 year and eventually get her high school diploma now the last time she would be seen was at the native friendship center in prince george bc on december 9th it's an annual christmas dinner that's thrown for the street kids every year which i thought was super sweet very considerate very kind there were about 150 kids that had showed up this year and they got to spend the day hanging out with each other eating turkey dinner dancing and actually getting some gifts as well so the party was something that was always enjoyed by everyone who attend and a youth worker who was actually present that night stated that after everyone ate alicia told her that she would be going out for a bit with a cousin but that she would come back and she wanted to ask and see if a present could be saved for her eventual return I thought this was really sweet and very reflective of her childlike innocence and personality despite living such a hard life at only 12 years old. Now, shortly after she told this youth worker that she'd be leaving but would be back and asked for a present to be saved to her for her, she would be spotted on a sidewalk downtown 
but Alicia unfortunately did not return to the party and she would not be seen alive again. At around 11 p.m. that night, a couple of teenagers were walking by Haldi Road Elementary School, which is on the outer part of Prince George in a forested area off of Highway 16. And while they were, you know, just hanging out, walking around the school, they actually found Alicia's body. And it was very clear that she had been stabbed to death. Now, this is very different than the rest of the cases. Um, most had, most previously, were murdered through strangulation. Most of the cases we had previously discussed, uh, the victims had passed away due to strangulation or blunt force trauma if their bodies, in fact, had been located. She was actually found only a few hours after she had disappeared and after she'd been murdered, and this was also very unusual MO for the Highway of Tears. And there was actually female DNA, which was found at the crime scene and was thought to have played an important role in her death. But unfortunately, this DNA has not been matched to anyone. Her case has remained cold and there are no leads. Lana Patricia Derrick was born and raised in Terrace, British Columbia to parents Marge and Darwin Haugen, I believe is how you say that name if I'm saying it incorrectly, I'm so sorry. Um, Lana was known as being happy, very funny. She enjoyed playing pranks on those close to her like her family and friends. She really loved being outside and connecting with nature. Her aunt Sally Gibson says that she just loved working outside and all the kind of stuff that went with it. Lana was super was super kind-hearted and she also really enjoyed school, which is not super common, but she really loved it. She was super smart and was very good at all aspects of it, so she really enjoyed it. At just 19 years old, Lana was excited to attend post-secondary school after she graduated high school. And in 1995, she would actually go on to enroll in the forestry program at Northwest Community College outside of her hometown in Houston, B.C. Houston is about a three-hour drive away from Terrace, so she wasn't going to be living with her family for the first time. But she always made a point to come back home and visit often, and she would often spend weekends at home with them to fit in as much quality time as possible. She was also known by her peers and professors as being a great student who took her studies very seriously. They were her number one priority. Now, as I mentioned, Lana often liked to come back home and visit with her family, and so she did just this on the weekend of October 6, 1995. Um, Lana came to town and her parents, and knew that her parents would be out working most of the weekend, so when she got home, she just kind of dropped her stuff off and headed into town to do some shopping, walk around, see if she would run into any of her friends. While she was walking around, she was actually spotted by her stepsister and a good friend, Clarice dessert. Um, Clarice was driving around, so she stopped Lana and let her know that her dad, Lana's stepdad, had given Clarice cash to give Lana. Lana asked if Clarice would be able to pick up the money from their shared relative and then allow her to pick it up from Clarice's place later on because Clarice lived downtown and so it would be much easier for Lana to get there from her house. Clarice agreed and they went on their way with plans to see each other later. Now, they didn't actually end up seeing each other till around 3 a.m., as that's when Lana got to Clarice's house. Clarice and the others who were in her home were actually passed out 
when Lana pulled up and Clarice was woken up by knocking at the door. Lana was alone. There wasn't a car, headlights, or other people around. Um, Clarice said that it was super clear that Lana had been drinking and was intoxicated, but she didn't seem upset, anxious, or show any emotions or any signs of something being wrong. So Clarice just thought that she was having a little bit of fun when she was back home. She was able to relax, not worry about school for the weekend. So she didn't think anything of it, as I don't think I would either if my sister had just come home from college and showed up to my house around 3 a.m. But the pair talked for a little bit and Lana actually invited her to go to a party. Uh, Clarice declined and after they went their separate ways, Clarice went back to bed and Lana went on her way. Clarice did not realize that she would be the last person in her friend or family group to see and speak to Lana. It unfortunately took the family a couple of days to even realize that something was wrong and that Lana was missing as her parents were out working most of the weekend as we talked about before. So on Saturday, October 7th, her parents, Marge and Darwin, noticed that Lana's stuff remained at home, but they just assumed that she spent the night out at a friend's and would be home soon. On Monday, October 9th, her parents came back home and they realized that her stuff was in the exact same spot. It hadn't been moved, it hadn't been touched, and it was clear to them at this point that she had not been home. And they again just gave her the benefit of the doubt. Um, She was very responsible and school began the next day on Tuesday. So they knew that if she was just out having fun with friends and had forgotten to check in, that she would be back then. She loved school. She was super dedicated to her studies and there was absolutely no way that she was going to miss it. Now on Tuesday, October 10th, Lana unfortunately did not come home and they both intuitively knew that something was wrong. They began calling around town and quickly realized that no one had heard or seen from her in about three days at this point. After realizing their daughter was missing, they went to the police to file a missing persons report as many of the other families did as well. Initially, their concerns were totally brushed off, and the police said it was likely that Lana was just partying or spending time with a boyfriend. Now, the parents knew this wasn't the case. They knew their daughter, and they knew that this did not fall in line with the way that she operated, especially because school began that day and she wasn't present. Something had to have been wrong for Lana not to go to school, but the police did not take their concerns seriously, as unfortunately they didn't and still don't really take things seriously with the missing women that have gone missing or have been murdered along the Highway of Tears. Because the police refused to act, care, or literally do anything to find Lana, their community, which was made up of family, friends, acquaintances, and even some strangers, began to search. The police got involved for about 72 hours at some point, and then they called off their search without actually finding any evidence, finding Lana, or finding anything which would help bring her home. Marge, Lana's mom, said that the RCMP told everyone to go home after they had been involved for only 72 hours of searching. She said that they told everyone that they'd keep them updated with what they find, but then the community looked at them and told them to go home because there's no way that they were done searching when Lana hadn't been found. And I think this is a really, this is a very telling circumstance and situation 
because the police are ready to give up and the community was like absolutely not this is just very showing of how the police probably should not be given the resources the funding and all of those things to locate missing people when the community often cares much more than the police ever will so after let's fast forward a little bit community searches had been going on for about a month and a witness came forward to actually make a statement they said that they had seen lana at a petro gas station in thornhill around 3 30 a.m on saturday october 7th thornhill is just across the river from downtown terrace it's a town we've talked about before but not in this context so the witness said that lana got out of the back seat of a blue car where two men were also in the car. One was in the driver's seat and one was in the passenger seat. They said that she went into the gas station, like the store part of it. Uh, she walked out, got back into the car, and then the, the car drove off heading into the direction of the Northern Motor Inn. Their statements were believed uh, by the police, but no footage from the gas station was able to be recovered because it wasn't saved and it had been recorded over at this point. Um, if the search had begun sooner, if this tip had come in sooner, if the family knew that this is where Lana was last seen, I am 100% sure this footage would have been found in its entirety. But anyways, based on the, based on the statements, sketches were released of the men who were in the car with her, but it unfortunately did not bring forward any leads into her disappearance. Now, the only other lead or suspect I suppose they had at the time, aside from these two men who were last seen with her, was her boyfriend. He had a history of drinking and then being physically rough or violent with previous girlfriends. And the night that Lana went missing, this boyfriend actually died by suicide, which was super suspicious to a lot of people, and it raised a couple red flags. It seemed to be a choice clearly made out of guilt, in a lot of people's opinions. The police, however, did not find any connection to the boyfriend's sudden death and Lana's disappearance. Laura's aunt says that she is skeptical if Lana was even ever at the gas station simply because the RCMP was able to get the statement and produce sketches only after they had the witness undergo hypnosis. This is obviously not the most reliable methods to use. Um, I don't even think that they would hold up in court uh, as there's no concrete evidence to back up their claims, but it was still taken as valid by the police. The family still thinks that the last time Lana was actually seen was when she left Clarice's house. They think that something happened to her shortly after she left there and that this person who was coming forward, their statements weren't necessarily true. Um, so yeah, definitely not the most reliable thing to make someone undergo hypnosis and then have them produce a statement and descriptions, but that's what they did. Lana's family does believe foul play was involved and that it would have taken multiple people to be involved in the attack as Lana was extremely strong and she would have done everything in her power to get away. 
She says that this is something that definitely troubles the family, but especially her father, because he just knows her will and her determination, and he knows that her last moments would not have been easy. That racist beliefs which police hold about Native women is a primary factor in why there are no definitive conclusions in this case. It also explains the lack of urgency to act when Lana's family first tried to report her as missing. Now, at some point in 1996, the family was able to offer a reward of $10,000 for any information about Lana's disappearance and her presumed death. It has been over 20 years since she disappeared and there have been no movements in her case whatsoever. There have been no new leads. No one has come forward with any more information. Her family organizes yearly marches where they, of course, march and try to get any new details or clues about where Lana is and what happened to her. And at these events, they will also regularly speak to media. They unfortunately have not been able to get any useful information from the events up until this point, but they are hopeful that more information will come forward and they will be able to have some closure and essentially bring Lana home to give her a proper burial. As expected, the RCMP are rarely, if ever, in contact with the family. They claim to have multiple suspects, but none of that information has been publicly shared. Nicole Doreen Hoar, H-O-A-R, was born and raised in North Toronto to parents Jack and Barb, and she is the middle child in a family of three with older sister Michelle and younger brother John. They lived on Hellendale Avenue for about 20 years, and when Nicole was 15, the family actually moved to Red Red Deer, Alberta. Nicole was known for focusing on her safety anywhere she went, and she was also very focused on her life goals. So this would lead her to graduating with a fine arts degree at a technological school in Nova Scotia after she spent two years at Red Deer College. Her degree was formally in fine arts with a major in ceramics, so this also made her extremely creative. And she was from Alberta, and she actually worked in the Prince George, B.C., area as a tree planter and she began doing this to save up money and just pay for her life throughout the winter so she didn't have to work as much and at 25 years old this would be her fourth year of being a tree planter so she'd been doing it since she was 21. She started this job as a way to raise money to fund her art school dream in the U.S. Now, according to her family, she was very serious about her art, and she was also super talented. So on June 21st, 2002, 25-year-old Nicole was seen hiking from Prince George to Smithers on Highway 16 West, where she had plans to surprise her sister and Smithers with a little visit, and this sighting would happen between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m., She was last seen at a Mohawk gas station, which was thought to later become a Shell gas station in the years following her disappearance. And she would go very, she would go missing very close to where Leah Germain was found. When she didn't arrive to work on June 27th, her bosses called the police and they were automatically convinced that she had been abducted by a stranger. 
The police say that Nicole, her family, and her friends are all of very high character, so they knew that they were dealing with something suspicious almost immediately. Now, this is extremely different from the way that they operated in the the rest of the cases, and a lot of people thought that this had to do with the fact that Nicole and her family are white, so there was going to be a different response as there would be a different amount of sympathy for white victims rather than indigenous ones. But after she was reported missing, there was an extensive search put together made of volunteers, family, friends, acquaintances, strangers, and the police who searched on foot and by air about 24,000 square kilometers, which actually included about 8,000 kilometers of the Highway of Tears. On June 7th, the search was called off and the police decided that since they hadn't found any physical evidence at this point, it was better to continue with phone tips exclusively rather than searching. Was this the right call? I don't know. But they did it, and the Hudson's Bay Company would actually go on to announce a reward of $25,000 for any information about Nicole's disappearance or her location. And the family also stated that they received plenty of personal donations, and they said that they would actually be donating any of the money that they did not need in Nicole's honor as it's something that she would have wanted them to do had she been there. They also set up the Nicole Horse Scholarship in 2004, and over 11 students have now been able to receive it since its conception. Now, it's important to note that there have been several searches of varying properties after the initial large search happened. So even though they weren't out there searching every day, it's not like they weren't searching which is very different than other cases as well. The man they allege who has some information about Nicole's whereabouts during the weekend of her initial disappearance, his description was released to the public. So I'm just going to go through it now. Um, They say he was a white man. And at the time in 2002, he had shoulder length brown or black hair. He had an overall scruffy appearance. He was a smoker and was probably in his mid 50s at this point. After releasing this description, there were thought there were almost a hundred public tips about him specifically, and a lot of people were saying that he was Leland Vincent Switzer. So who is he? He's a man named Leland Vincent Switzer, who was in prison at this time for shooting and killing his brother, Irvine Luke Switzer, only two days before Nicole went missing. So Leland would do a bunch of things that can only be described as wild before being arrested and formally charged, which included but was not limited to threatening to kill two officers, driving into an RCMP vehicle, and trying to run over an officer while fleeing after drunkenly firing off shots inside his parents' home. So for secondary murder of his brother, he was sentenced to life in prison, which in Canada is 25 years minimum, but was eligible for parole after 10 years. So he actually got out in 2016, but was initially denied parole in 2014. His entire home and property would later be searched for Nicole's body. Uh, The police made a statement saying that they were obviously searching for her body or any evidence of her presence. And they would not publicly comment on whether they actually found anything 
on his property after it was searched and the family has also not commented but based on recent interviews i assume that they would have told the family but there does not seem to be any public information explaining why he was a person of interest aside from these people who claimed that the description looked like him and also that he was in the area at the time because he had not yet been arrested for the death of his brother and also no one has publicly said why he's responsible and no charges have been laid on him for the death or disappearance of Nicole so I don't think it's not completely fair to say that he did it but this is the only suspect at this time it's been 19 years since Nicole went missing and her case is open but is considered cold it's unsolved despite receiving the most media attention and national coverage and the police also allege that people were concerned about her case because things like this apparently don't happen to girls like her now what they're insinuating with this comment is super unclear because like most of the other victims she was hitchhiking and that was something that they considered to be a high-risk activity we'll return back to nicole's case and discuss it a little bit more in depth in next week's part two to the highway of tears the conclusion but essentially her community is still the one advocating for her every single day just like with any of the other cases and the police claim to have leads and things like that but nothing has been shared with the public while still insisting on the public's help to solve the case so if you have any information regarding nicole's disappearance her whereabouts please make sure to leave that at the anonymous tips link that we talked about before it could be a phone call it could just be a simple anonymous message but if you have if you know something you should say something to try to bring some closure to the families tamara chipman was born in prince rupert bc specifically morristown first nation and was member of the wet'suwet'en nation to mother Corey millwater and father tom chipman as a baby according to her aunt gladys she was just the cutest. She had an absolutely great sense of humor as she got older and would often make everyone laugh at family get-togethers. She absolutely loved the outdoors and was known as a lively, exciting, and mischievous child. Growing up, she was actually best friends with her grandpa and her dad, whom she spent a lot of time in nature with, as her dad was a fisherman. So she also had immense amounts of respect for and appreciation for the water. As she continued to grow, she was soon known as feisty, fiery, and unafraid of anything or anyone allowing her ultra-independence to come through. She had also spent a lot of time on her father's boat as she was younger and as she got older. Shortly after her grandpa passed away, the family moved to Terrace, B.C. So while in Terrace, Tamara consistently grew closer to her aunt Gladys Raddick, the one we talked about before who said that she was super cute as a baby. Um, The two friends would see each other almost every day to talk about any and everything over a lot of coffee. Now, unfortunately, Aunt Gladys would not remain in Terrace for very long, She was there strictly for a personal matter, and once that got cleared up, she returned back home to Vancouver. 
Not long after Aunt Gladys left, Tamara had a son named Jaden, who she loved with her whole heart and was born when she was only 19 years old. Tamara absolutely adored Jaden and did everything she could to make sure he was happy, but she would soon begin to struggle with the immense responsibility of being a single parent at such a young age. Her mother says that she began to worry about her daughter as she did not seem like herself and even began hanging out with a new group of people. And her mom suspected that she may have began using drugs with this new group of people. This was around the time she had begun to dabble in sex work according to her family and friends. They said it was something she did to make ends meet. And it's super important to note that at the time she disappeared, she was not engaged in any sex work of any kind. The family wants this to be known uh, simply because of the criteria of the RCMP, but they're saying that she was not, she wasn't doing it. She didn't need to do it at the time. So that's not even a thing. So Tamara's dad, Tom, lived in Terrace and her mom lived, her mom, Corey, lived in Prince Rupert. So Tamara and her son would split their time between the two homes. In September of 2005, Tamara was visiting her mom and had been there for a little bit already, but she didn't currently have her car as it actually broke down a couple weeks before in Terrace, and so it was getting serviced back there. She would have to go back to her old way of getting around, which would unfortunately be hitchhiking. But again, throughout this whole time period from 1969, kind of onwards, very hard to get around this area if you don't have a car. Hitchhiking was and still is super common. So Tamara was actually spotted by a close friend of her father's who had seen her hitchhiking towards Terrace at Industrial Park just outside of Prince Rupert during the afternoon of September 21st, 2005. And this would be the last time that she was seen. It's unclear where Jaden was at this time or who he was being taken care of, but he was definitely not with her. About a week or so after she had first disappeared, her family started to try and get into contact with her to no avail. They would also begin looking for her, but again, to no avail. Months after this last sighting, Tamara was finally reported missing. And the reason it took so long was because her family in Prince Rupert assumed that she was spending time with family in Terrace and vice versa, right? The family in Terrace thought she was spending time in Prince Rupert. So with both people, both parties, assuming that she was with someone else, they just thought that she would, she was fine. She was taken care of and she'll check back in when she can. But her dad, like I mentioned before, her dad is a fisherman and he would be gone for long periods of time on the water because of this, so it was understandable that he had not seen or spoken to Tamara. But in early November, he was the one who began to realize that no one had really heard from her and it had been longer than usual. Like there would be times where she might fall out of contact with him, but she would be in contact with someone, but she was in contact with no one at this point. He also noticed that her bank account had not been touched, there had been no withdrawals or anything for some time now, and her rent also remained unpaid. He reported her missing, and on November 15th, an an official investigation began, and so did an official search for her. Volunteer-based searches would go on for about two months after she was reported missing, 
and her father himself walked the route from Prince Rupert to Terrace to search for signs of his daughter. Her dad says that the community really stepped up after she was announced missing, and he says that there were dozens of people reaching out daily who were searching the highway and all of the side roads for her or any evidence of her being there. It is unknown to the family if the police ever participated in a search or led their own search for her, while the police claim that they led one that they led one singular search for her that lasted only a couple hours. The family also went to Vancouver and began handing out flyers with Tamara's picture and information present on them. The media would eventually go on to pick up Tamara's story and answer the family's call for help. After some time, the official, the quote-unquote official story of what happened to Tamara was shared and confirmed by a woman who is said to have been present in her last moments. This woman said that it was her and two men at, in the car at the time. They said that she said that they saw Tamara hitchhiking, as the family friend had claimed before, but they were the ones to pick her up. The woman said that they were driving towards Terrace, and things were fine you know everyone was getting along and then all of a sudden Tamara and one of the men one of the men in the car began fighting he allegedly hit her and strangled her to death um, she said they were all freaking out they didn't know what to do but they decided to shortly pull the car over and dump Tamara's body out of the car along highway 16 and the man who was actually responsible for her death would later return by himself to better hide the body in an area where it was covered and wasn't so easy to view. After this version of events came forward, the police went and searched the area where the female witness claims her body was put and unfortunately she would not be found. Now, all parties who were involved in this version of events have actually passed away. So there's no way to confirm how factual this claim of events is because it was only mentioned in one explanation by one person and the family has not added validity to it her case is also still open remains a is considered a cold case and is unsolved so again it's unclear of how true this claim is or was aunt gladys was the designated person of contact for the family and yet the police rarely contact her the family believes that her history with sex work has made the police see her as disposable, and they have every right to think this. The last time she had spoken to anyone from the RCMP was in 2013, but they didn't mention any new leads in the case. The family's at the point where they've stopped asking for updates, actually. And after feeling like there wasn't any support for her and the rest of Tamara's relatives, Aunt Gladys would go on to form a organization called Walk for Justice, which she made with other people. And it's a local org dedicated to raising awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. All the links to that can be found in the description. And I would definitely recommend you go check them out, support in any way that you can, and become involved in their work. And yeah, just really support them. So now we are going to get into the last case of part one of the Highway of Tears series, and it is of 
Isla Sarek Auger. So Miss Isla was born on December 30th, 1991 in Edmonton, Alberta, and was the baby of her family of six kids. The family was super close, and they were very protective of one another, and they deeply loved each other. Ayla was described to be extremely kind-hearted and friendly. She would make friends with ease and was trusting to a fault, according to older brother Tim. She was super well-liked, and she just tried to be as helpful as she could whenever she could. Her single mother, Audrey, did what she could to take care of her children to the best of her capabilities while actively battling addictions issues. This was cause CFS to get involved and split the family up instead of providing the family with the supports needed to bring instability and help for all parties involved. Now this would happen a couple times over the course of, of Isla's young life, but the family would always be reunited and Audrey would always get all of the children back. But this would actually result in the family spending most of Isla's younger years moving around. After she got the children back, they would move and try and start over. This would unfortunately lead to Isla being sexually assaulted as a child by both a family member and later on a friend of the family. As soon as Audrey found out, she removed the children from the homes in which the abusers lived or frequented that they were staying in at the time and would immediately get somewhere safe. But after the second round of abuse came to light, Audrey and her family began to receive threats from a local. Uh, the basis of these threats is kind of unclear, but it seems like the person, it seems to me like it was the person who was responsible for Isla's abuse or someone who knew him that was threatening the family into not coming forward or pressing charges about what he would have done to nine-year-old Isla at the time. In 2004, Audrey and her family decided to move to Prince George, BC, as her older brother lived there, and he was super dependable and was someone safe that she could count on and trust. They went from living just off of Highway 16 to securing a home in a duplex on McIntyre Crescent. At this point, Isla was 14 years old and a student at D.P. Todd Secondary School in Prince George, BC, where she was in the eighth grade. According to family, by this time, she began to engage in what could be described as risky behavior um, as she began drinking and even occasionally smoking weed. Now, this was clearly happening as a way to cope with all of the trauma that she'd already experienced at just 14 years old. And again, a clear sign that proper supports were not given to the family and they could have easily been, but it's very likely that had Isla been given the things that she needed from CFS rather than just been consistently being taken away and apprehended and separated from her family, that she would not have ended up in the predicament that she would end up in. On Thursday, February 2nd of 2006, Isla, her brother Tim, and her sister Kyla decided to go shopping and spend the day at Pine Center Mall. The mall was pretty close to their house, and at the time, it was the biggest mall in, in Prince George, so they obviously wanted to go and hang out. Audrey agreed, and she would drop them off, but this would unfortunately be the last time that Isla was seen by her mom. While at the mall, the trio of siblings ran into some friends who invited them to spend the night drinking and partying. Tim wasn't really a big fan of 
this kind of activity, so he didn't really want to go, but his sisters did. They tried to convince him to tag along, but he was not having it. Now, before they went their separate ways, Tim made a point of telling them, do not drink or take any drugs from anyone. Whether you know them or not, don't do it. He wanted them to, of course, have fun, but ultimately be safe. Now, Audrey was not told that they were going to go and party, but she was told that the two would be going to a friend's house for a sleepover together, which she was okay with. I'm sure if she knew their actual plans, she would have made sure that all three of them came home that night and not just Tim. Now, after Tim left, it's kind of unclear what happened, but what is confirmed is that Isla and Kyla became separated at some point throughout the night, and they were not together again after that point of separation. Now, early the next day, Friday morning, Kyla came home, but Isla did not. Panicked, Audrey began to question Kyla and Tim about what happened, and no one knew where she was or where she had went. They explained and shared that they thought she was she would be coming home soon and that she was just running a little bit late. So Audrey accepted that this could be a possibility, and she decided to wait around a little bit longer, but then she realized that something was wrong and immediately went to report her daughter is missing. Audrey went to report her daughter as missing to the police and shared all of the information she had with them, and they told her that she would have to wait at least 78 hours before being able to file an official report. Now, this is not a typical way to do things, especially when a minor is concerned. I've heard of them making people wait 24 hours, sometimes 72, but to make a parent wait 78 hours like I don't even understand where this number came from but this was extremely frustrating and Audrey was not about to wait around passively for this time to pass because it was valuable time that was being wasted for what you know for no real reason other than the police did not want to help this indigenous woman locate one of her children her family and friends were contacted to be informed that Isla was missing and to see if they knew where she was and to help with the search. Kyla and her friends stayed looking for her where she was known to hang out. Her older sister, Sarah, stayed at home by the phone in case a call came through from Isla or someone who knew where she was or had found her. Audrey and Tim went to what were called the rougher parts of the city, such as alleys or yards, to make sure if she had managed to kind of make her way there. Audrey and her kids looked all around the city and had put up flyers around town to see if anyone had any information regarding her whereabouts. Now, Isla's missing persons report was officially filed on February 6th, 2006, and it unfortunately received minimal attention or even press coverage. And as a result of that, it would go on to receive minimal tips or information or general public assistance. Now, on February 10th, a person was riding their motorcycle traveling east, heading towards Prince George on Highway 16. They ended up calling police after they saw something in a ditch near a ski ski resort. The police went to the area and located Isla's naked body just 23 kilometers east of downtown Prince George. It was unclear how long she had been there, but autopsy results were able to confirm that she had died as a result of blunt force trauma to the head. 
The family was not at all prepared to pay for a funeral and any general expenses to deal with this abrupt loss. And so the vice principal of Isla's school launched a fundraiser to help love and financially support the family during their time of immense grief. This is extremely caring of them. It's so thoughtful. And it really shows that the community was with them. Now, after some time, the police claimed that they had the details of what happened during the night of her death and disappearance. So apparently late on February 2nd, Isla went to a friend's house to ask that friend's mom for a ride home as she didn't want to call her own mom. Why she wouldn't want to call her own mom is unclear, but I'm assuming it had something to do with the fact that she was not where she said she would be. Um, she might have been drinking, she might have been smoking a little bit of weed, so she didn't want to get in trouble, or she just didn't want to bother or upset her mom if this is what happened. So after her friend's mom told her she was not able to take her home, she just kind of walked onwards and was actually spotted on surveillance footage. She was walking north of 2100 block on Quince Street, and she passed past the Save on Foods gas bar on 15th Avenue at around 1 a.m. The other events of this night are generally unclear and they don't have any ideas and there were actually allegations that after leaving her friend's house she went to a house where people were known to buy and use drugs. Some others say that she was last spotted getting into a black car and she was also confirmed to have had a run-in with a police officer that night who was questioned but later cleared because he passed a polygraph test. Now Polygraph tests are such BS for a number of reasons, the first being that they are completely unreliable, they're easy to fake, they're easy to pass if you know what you're doing, and they aren't even able to be used in court, so why it would have been used to clear an officer who may have had some involvement is really ridiculous to me and also super frustrating. Also, in the breakdown of events, they don't say when she encountered the police officer, just that she ran into him and that was it. But again, no focus on him as a suspect. It doesn't make it, it's not clear if they investigated the person who was threatening them years before, but they're not mentioned at all for the rest of this. So it was actually Isla's death, which led to the Highway of Tears symposium after her band wrote a press release. Her death really broke her family apart, and it's something I'm sure they will still battle with to this day. So from 2007 to 2013, Audrey, her mom, actually held an annual walk called the Highway of Hope Walk, and it occurred along Highway 16 from Prince George to Driftpile Cree Nation. She did so with the purpose of raising attention and awareness about murders and disappearances, which happened along the same highway. She often walked alone, but people were usually driving in their cars alongside her to show support and cheer her on. These walks came to a brief halt after Audrey herself unfortunately passed away on March 5th of 2013. She would pass away not knowing what happened to her daughter. The walks would actually continue in 2015 onwards, with Audrey now being one of the main individuals who is consistently honored. Isla's case remains cold and unsolved with no new suspects or leads, which is super unfortunate. 
I just want to thank you so much for tuning into this week's segment of Girl You Haven't Heard, a true crime and Black history podcast where this week we talked about the Highway of Tears and we discussed the cases of Gloria Moody, Micheline Parr, Gail Ways, Pamela Darlington, Monica Ignis, Colleen McMillan, Monica Jack, Maureen Mosey, Shellyanne Baxku, Alberta Williams, Def- Delphine Nical, Ramona Wilson, Roxanne Tierra, Alicia Germain, Alicia Germain, Lana Derrick, Nicole Hoare, Tamara Chipman, and Isla Sarek Auger. We also briefly talked about the RCMP EPANA investigation, and that is what we discussed in part one. Tune in next week to hear the rest of the segment where we will get into the problems surrounding the RCMP and their investigation. We will also be discussing some more cases of those who also went missing or were murdered along the Highway of Tears and I guess are some of the lesser known cases as they're not included in the EPANA investigation. We will also talk about racism wrapped up within this case and just give a final conclusion, summary, and more information about what you can do to help or how you can support families going forward. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I will see you next week. If you know anything about this case, now would be a good time to go and leave an anonymous tip, either through the phone line or online. Both of those resources can be found in the description.